right. If you have a Bible today, let's open up to First Chronicles chapter 13. As we continue our journey through the Bible, what a blessing it is to come to, you know, this place where we cover everything. And maybe there were some chapters you wouldn't, you know, study, but then you find that when you have in about five years or whatever, however long it takes to get through the Bible, man, you will benefit so much. And today we're going to see at least three things, among many other things, but at least three things that stand out that we can pull from our text. And I just want to share them with you. If you're taking notes, I know they're kind of long, but they're principles that I think we'll see tonight. The Lord wants to teach us. Number one is it is possible to do the right thing the wrong way. It is possible to do the right thing the wrong way. And that's why, you guys, I want to encourage you to know um, whenever you make a decision, uh, before you do anything, ask yourself, ask the Lord, ask others that know the Bible, is this biblical? And so we'll see that tonight. Uh, second thing we're going to see is this, and I'm sure you've heard this before, but just because everyone else is doing it doesn't make it right, right? I mean, we have to tell our kids that a lot of times, right? Well, hey, so-and-so has a, a phone and they're only five and that's okay, you know? But just because everyone else is doing it doesn't make it right. Right? Again, you have to ask yourself the same question. Before we do anything, we must ask ourselves, is this biblical? God doesn't grade on a curve. Remember that. Just because other people do it, or other Christians do it, or other people you think that are godly do it, it doesn't make it right. And so we're going to see that in our text today. And then the last thing is this, and this one is a little bit more difficult to catch, but... Um, I'm going to say it this way. Don't assume. Do commune. And what I mean by that is pray about everything. And you did it. You know, you prayed about it and you did it. And then you're going to do it again. But you got to pray about it again. And we're going to see that today in the life of David. Um, he prays about it. He inquires of the Lord. God gives him direction. And then rather than just assuming, well, the Lord must want me to do it again the same way. He says, no. And he asks the Lord again. And those are things that we constantly need. They're really the basics of life. You're in the Word, you're in prayer. You're in the Word, you're in prayer. We must devote ourselves continually, the Bible says in the book of Acts chapter 6, to the Word of God and prayer. Why? Because it's a relationship that we have with God. And, and so we see it here uh, beginning in First Chronicles 13. Notice in verse 1, it says, And then David consulted with the captains of thousands and hundreds, and with every leader. And David said to all the assembly of Israel, If it seems good to you, and if it is of the Lord our God, let us send out to our brethren everywhere who are left in all the land of Israel, and with them to the priests and Levites who are in their cities and their common lands, that they may gather together to us. And let us bring the ark of our God back to us, for we have not inquired at it since the days of Saul. Then all the assembly said that would be they, that they would do so, for the thing was right in the eyes of all the people. David has an idea, and I think it's a good idea. I think it's actually a good thing to bring the ark um, to Jerusalem. Uh, we saw last week that he had now made Jerusalem his capital, and so he wants to bring the ark to Jerusalem. Uh, for those of you who don't know what the ark is, we're not talking about Noah's ark, okay? We're, we're talking about the ark of God, the ark of the covenant. Uh, if you read in Exodus 25, 10 through 22, you'll find there when God first instructed Moses to build an ark, it would be about three and three quarters feet long, it was about two and a quarter feet wide. It was about two and a quarter feet high. It was made of acacia wood, but it was overlaid with gold on all its sides, inside and out, all around. And, and if you were to look at that, I think we even have a picture of it for you to look at. It would have four rings of gold and two poles then made of acacia wood, covered again with gold, and they were to insert the two poles through the rings in order to carry the ark whenever they had to transport the ark. When you study the Ark of the Covenant, you'll find that it was to be placed in the most holy place 
behind the veil in the tabernacle. And then later, when Solomon built the temple, it was placed there. And so you, you see, as a beautiful piece of work, uh, it was symbolic of God's throne. It was symbolic of God's presence. Uh, the cover of the ark, also known as the mercy seat in the Bible, was to be made of pure gold, the cover of pure gold. Two cherubim, two angels, uh, were to be part of that lid on each end, facing each other with their wings spread out above the mercy seat. And when you study the Bible, you find that within the ark, there was to be the stone tablets upon which were written the terms of the covenant. Some people believe it's just the Ten Commandments. And then later they would add the jar of manna. So they had manna as a testimony. And they also later, according to Exodus 16.33, Numbers 17.10, and Hebrews 9.4, they would also have Aaron's rod that budded. And so uh, it was beautiful, the ark. And uh, it was in the city, Kirjath Jerem. It really didn't belong there. And, and, and so David comes up with uh, a plan you know, to bring the ark uh, to the people. The ark was so beautiful there between the cherubim. Once a year, the high priest would go in and he would sprinkle the blood. And you know, one of the beautiful uh, passages in the Bible is Exodus twenty five twenty two. When God talks about the ark, he says, and right there on the mercy seat, right there between the cherubim, he says, I will meet with you. And I will speak with you from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim, which are on the ark of the testimony about everything which I give you in commandment to the children of Israel. You see, that's why David wanted the ark. He wanted God's presence with him. He wanted to hear the voice of the Lord, the commands of his creator, in order to be a, an effective leader for the children of Israel. So it was an absolutely wonderful, it was a beautiful desire for him to want to bring the ark to Jerusalem. He believed in the promise of God's presence. He wanted to be able to hear God's commands. And so, you know, I like what... Um, Haley's Bible Handbook. It gives a good history of the ark up to this point. This is what it says. It says, The ark had been captured by the Philistines, if you go back to 1 Samuel 4, and it remained with them for seven months. And you read that in 1 Samuel 6. Before it was eventually sent back to Israel by the Philistines in order to stop the plagues that had accompanied its capture and possession. God said, You don't belong to the Philistines. I belong to the Israelites. And so God, you know, messed with them, right? Because they thought their God was, you know, God. No, he wasn't. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that's that's God. And so what we see right here is, you know, sent them plague, so they sent it back. It then stayed at this city called Kirjath and Jerem. It was about eight and a half miles northwest of Jerusalem for 20 years. It was there for 20 years, according to 1 Samuel 7, 2. And so David, after establishing Jerusalem as the national capital, he called all Israel together to bring the ark to Jerusalem in a grand ceremonial procession. And so, you know, it was a good thing. It was a good thing to want the ark in Jerusalem. And so what we read in our text right here is that David meets with every leader. You know, all the guys, he asked them what they think. Notice again there in verse 2, David said to all the assembly Israel, if it seems good to you, right? And if it is of the Lord our God. You know, he's asking their, their word. He said, let's invite all our brethren, all the priests, all the Levites, and, you know, everyone, you know, to come and let's do this thing. And everyone said, amen, sounds good, uh, we even read, notice there at the end of verse 4, then all the assemblies said they would do so, for the thing was right in the eyes of the people. You know, and it was, a, it was a good desire of David. So here's the thing, okay? He met with the leaders, but did he meet with the Lord? It's more important to meet with the Lord than it is to meet with the leaders, even if it's all the leaders, even if it's all the people. Did that leader meet with the Lord, for one? Secondly, we see right here in verse 4 that it was right in the eyes of the people. 
But we'll see in our text that the way it was done was not right in the eyes of God. And for every leader, we need to take heed to that. You know, you meet with others, that's cool, but have you met with God? Have you really prayed about it? And it's a great thing that you want to do, but man, you got to make sure that you don't do the right thing the wrong way. Because as a leader, you make decisions that affect everyone. Have you prayed? How is your prayer life? Seriously. You're going through the motions. You, have you heard from God? And so right here, you know, it, it was right in the, in the eyes of the people. It wasn't right in the eyes of God. He met with the leaders. He hadn't met with the Lord. And so look what happens in verse 5. It says, So David gathered all Israel together um, from Shihor, way down there south in Egypt, to as far as the entrance of Hamath, to bring the ark of God with Kirjath-Jerim. And David and all Israel went up to Baala, to Kirjath-Jerim, which belonged to Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God the Lord, who dwells between the cherubim, where his name is proclaimed. And so they carried the ark of God in a new cart, from the house of Abinadab and Uzzah, and Ahio drove the cart. And then David and all Israel, they played music before God, notice, with all their might, with singing on harps, on stringed instruments, on tambourines, on cymbals, and with trumpets. And when they came to Chidon's threshing floor, Uzzah put out his hand to hold the ark, for the oxen stumbled. And then the anger of the Lord was aroused against Susa and he struck him because he had put his hand to the ark and he died there before God. You see, this is an example of doing the right thing the wrong way. And we can do this uh, many ways, you guys. Um, you know, like here's some, 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 I guess, maybe less serious examples, but, but you got to check your heart. Like, for example, um, when you serve, how's your attitude? When you serve, how's your attitude? You know, you're doing something. My wife will ask me to give her a massage. I'm like, oh, you know, giving her a massage. Yeah, I'm such a good husband, you know. And it's like, <laughs> no, you're not. You know what? Don't even, you know what? Don't even serve. Yo, I gotta be here again. This is when I'm you're mumbling. You know what? You're doing the right thing the wrong way. Or you're giving. You're giving to the Lord, right? And some people they give of their tithes and their offerings to God, but they do it grudgingly. Ah, I guess I'll put that, you know, five dollars in the, you know, whatever. And I'm telling you this, man, you know what? I, we don't talk about this a whole lot, but I tell you what, you you can't outgive God. And you give hilariously, the Bible says. You give cheerfully. But if you're not going to give that way, don't think that we need your money. God doesn't need it. You're, you're messing yourself up. You can do the right thing the wrong way. And that happens in, in many forms, I think, for us as Christians. But especially when we look at this right here, this is very serious. Especially when things are done in public. Especially when things are done... Uh, 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 as leaders are leading the way, uh, we need to really ask ourselves, is this thing really being done, you know, biblically? And, and what David and all Israel was doing wasn't even like uh, one of those things where I'm not sure if this is, you know, you know how it is. Sometimes you're like, there's a gray area in one sense. I'm not really sure about that. I mean, this is something that was a slam dunk, unbiblical, anti-biblical thing that they were doing. Because sometimes people will try to make something that's not clear a big issue. That's not clear. You can't make that a big issue. But when it's clear, see, now we're talking about something very serious. You know, we know according to Scripture that this was a clear violation because the ark was supposed to be carried by the Levites, specifically the sons of Kohath, and it was not to be touched by them. It says that very clearly in Exodus 25 and verse 14. You shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark that they may be carried by them. 
And then in Numbers chapter 4, verse 15, And when Aaron and his sons have finished covering the sanctuary and all the furnishings of the sanctuary, when the camp is set to go, then the sons of Kohath shall come to carry them, but they shall not touch any holy thing lest they die. These are the things in the tabernacle of meeting which the sons of Kohath are to carry. And so, you know, it's just clear Right, the, the sons of Kohath supposed to carry it. Even they aren't supposed to touch it. And so it makes you wonder, then why would David transport the ark on a cart? Why did he do that? Where in the world did that come from? Well, it came from the world, right? That's where it came from. David carried the cart on the ark because the Philistines had carried the ark on the cart. They had transported the ark on the cart, right? In 1 Samuel chapter 6, we read that. And so David figured, hey, the world's doing it. I'm going to do the same thing the world's doing. And I think a lot of times that can happen in the church. You know, we got to be so careful. Here's David, a man after God's own heart, mimicking the world. You know, as you're making decisions as far as what to do, Make sure that you don't do things that are clearly, clearly unbiblical. And, and, I, and, I, and I think the thing about this is that David did this, I believe, sincerely. Uh, he definitely did it enthusiastically, right? But did you guys know that it's possible to be sincere, but to be sincerely wrong? That's what happened here, right? Right? It was done unscripturally, and therefore it became a tragedy. Even though everyone agreed and everyone was excited about it. Warren Wiersbe said, A unanimous decision is not always a right decision, and enthusiasm is not the best test of truth. Remember that, you guys. It's a heavy lesson. You know, Uzzah, apparently they're going, and the oxen stumbles, and they hit a speed bump or something, you know. And so the, the ark starts tipping, and next thing you know, it starts falling. And so he sees it about to hit the ground, and he thought, well, I'll rescue it. Perhaps mistakenly convinced that he was holier and cleaner than the ground and the dirt, but he wasn't. None of us are. None of us are cleaner than the dirt. And so we all touch it. And what ends up happening is he dies. Somebody dies. And, you know, you can blame, you know, Uzzah if you want. Maybe it is a partially his fault. And you might blame the leaders. I think that if you're, you know, meeting with your leader and you see something clearly, clearly violating Scripture, I'm not talking about the way that you, you know, you know interpret it in a very creative way. I'm talking about clear. Then... Um, Maybe they should have said something to David. Somebody should have said something to David. But at the end of the day, is David. At the end of the day, he's the leader. At the end of the day, he's responsible. That's the leader's job. And what ends up happening is he makes a decision that costs someone's life. You know, another great quote by Wiersbe in this context. He said, the time to find out how to do his work is before the job begins, not after the funeral. And so you guys, as we're making these decisions, you know, really encourage you to make sure that you pray and you seek the Lord and you get, you know, the scriptural uh, backing that you need in order to go forward. And because in this case, we see it's a lesson for all of us and it's a hard lesson to learn in a hard way. My prayer is that we would learn from David's mistake, uh, from their mistake. Uh, my prayer is that we would consult the Lord about the proper biblical order. You know, David had eventually learned a lesson. If you go over to chapter 15 for a second, uh, they're eventually going to get the ark there. They're going to do it the right way next time. But look at verse 2 of First Chronicles 15. And David said, No one may carry the ark of God but the Levites, for the Lord God had chosen them to carry the ark of God and to minister before him 
forever. See, he learned, right? If you look, go down to verse 13, the same chapter, for because you did not do it the first time, the Lord our God broke out against us because, notice, we did not consult him about the proper order. And that's why it's so important to know your Bible. You guys read it, read it, read it all your life, all your days, morning and night. Meditate on it. Study it. I'm telling you, I'm not exaggerating. The more you know your word, the more you will be able to avoid things like this. And so after this happened, uh, we read over in First Chronicles 13 and verse 11, and David was, he became angry because of the Lord's outbreak against Uzzah. Therefore, that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. David was afraid of God that day, saying, How can I bring the ark of God to me? So David would not move the ark with him into the city of David, but took it aside into the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. And the ark of God remained with the family of Obed-Edom in his house three months, and the Lord blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that he had. Now, to me, it's interesting that after this happened, David was angry. He was angry, and then later we read he was afraid. I don't know who he was angry with. I mean, maybe he was angry at God. You know how some people are like that? In times of tragedies, they get angry with God. But man, we've got to guard ourselves against that. We need to remember that God only acts and allows acts in His perfect holiness and for our best interest. Never forget that, even when you don't understand you got to know that there's a great reason Uzzah had to die. You know, when I read this, you know what it communicates to me? That we serve a holy God. And I am to fear God. He had to die in order for that message to come. And it's, it's been communicated throughout the, throughout the ages. He had to die to remind the entire nation that God is a holy God and things need, they must be done His way. God forgive us. God, you know, give us wisdom. to. If there's anyone here, you're doing things your way, not God's way. May He strike you with His loving fear tonight. Because something's going to happen. You know, there's always a price to be paid. You know, and, and some people, they get mad at God. You know, someone died. Why would, you, why would you get mad at God, the one who made you, the one who redeemed you, the one who loves you, the one who's watching over you? You know, some people say, well, poor Uzzah, he's such a good guy, and he's trying to, you know, to save the ark. Isn't that a noble, you know, act? And, and you know, some people, they'll ask the question, why does God allow bad things to happen to good people? You know, you hear that question a lot, Right. But, you know, the, the better question is, uh, why do good things happen to bad people? There's no good people. Well, you're like, well, I am. Well, okay, you're the exception, okay? <laughs> but I tell you what my Bible says, there is no one good. No, not one. The better question, a far better question, is why would God allow good things to happen to us. And He does. He loves us. Wasn't today a beautiful day? I mean, just, I love the weather. I can actually function now. Because when it gets too cold, uh, too hot, I'm wimpy, man. (laughs) But we live a beautiful day. God God has blessed our lives. And I pray that we would know that none of us deserve it. But it's because of His good grace upon us. You know, right here we see that after the anger, David was afraid. Let me ask you a question. Do you think that was good? It was good, huh? It was good. I mean, how many people would avoid the calamities and tragedies of life if only they had a little bit of a healthy fear of God? You know, I fear God. I, I know. I, I I know, man, what will happen because he's, I'm so accountable. I have people praying for me. I have studied the Bible. They've allowed me to study the Bible. 
And if I'm not living it, you know, God's going to really hold me accountable. You know, God is holy. God is awesome. God is to be feared. God is to be revered. So David right here in this middle of this whole thing, he doesn't know what to do. And so what does he do? He pushes pause. And that's a good thing. Okay, you don't know what to do? Maybe you should push pause. (laughs) Time out on this relationship. I don't know if this relationship is of God. Let me push pause. Whatever it might be. And what does he do? He just says, okay, for now, I'm going to wait on the Lord for his marching orders. And so in the meantime, what ends up happening is they keep the ark at the house of Obed-Edom for three months. And this guy got blessed, you know, big time, (laughs) that the ark was at his house. Obed-Edom was a Levite. He was actually a musician, according to 1 Chronicles 15 and 16 through 24. And so it's a good place for the Ark of the Covenant to be. And just as a quick side note, if you're here and you have a home and you want God to bless your home, bring the presence of God into your home. Turn off the junk that sometimes you allow into your house through your television. You allow garbage, you allow demonic stuff sometimes into your house in ways it could be through music or whatever's going on. No, make your house a house for the presence of God. And when that ark was there, the Lord blessed their house. And I wonder how He blessed it. What do you guys think it was? I, I'm not really sure. You know, I have a feeling it probably wasn't a financial blessing. It probably wasn't, you know, those types of things that we, I think it was just so much, so much deeper. And so, first lesson is that it is possible to do the right thing the wrong way. And so, before you do anything, ask yourself, ask your friends, is this okay? Is this biblical? Secondly, remember this, just because everyone else is doing it, it doesn't make it right. Well, Manny's doing it. It doesn't even make it right if Manny's doing it, right? What makes it right is whether or not God says it's right. If it's wrong, don't do it. Look what we read in verse 14. Now Hiram, king of Tyre, he sent messengers to David and cedar trees with masons and carpenters to build him a house. And so David knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel, for his kingdom was highly exalted for the sake of his people Israel. Then David took more wives in Jerusalem, and David begot more sons and daughters. And these are the names of his children whom he had in Jerusalem. Shemua, Shobab, Nathan, Solomon, Ephar, Elishua, Elipheleth, Noga, Nepheg, Japhia, Elishama, Bielidia, and Elipheleth. And if you're looking for names for your kids, you know, here's some that aren't all that common, right? <laughs> Eliphalet, that's pretty neat. I don't know. I'm sure they mean beautiful things, right? And so, you know, when in looking at this right here, we we kind of see ministry, and we kind of see family. They're they're kind of tied into this section right here. We read about the Hiram king of Tyre in verse one. He was a friend of David's. Uh, they were allies at the time. Hiram, we see here, supplied materials and workers for David to build his palace. And later he would supply materials for Solomon to build the temple, according to 1 Kings chapter 5, verse 1. And so, you know, it looks pretty cool. Things seem to be going good. Uh, again, we read there in verse 2 that, the, that David knew the Lord had established him as king over Israel. You know, he knew that. Uh, and the reason the Lord had done such a beautiful work is because of, he loved his people. It wasn't, you know, David necessarily. It's because he loved his people, right? For the sake of his people. So in one sense, when you look at that right there and you look at this section, let me ask you a question. Was it going good? And, and the answer is yes and no. That's the answer. Yes and no. Ministry, going pretty good. Family, no. No. How do I know that? Because look at all these wives he got. And one wife is hard enough. No offense, ladies. You know, but that's 
you know, when you read the Bible, and you know, you read that God instituted marriage in Genesis chapter 2, He just, it was Adam and Eve. That was it, right? There wasn't a whole bunch of wives that were added to Adam's plate. It was just Adam and Eve. You know, what you find is that David was having a public ministry that was thriving, but in all reality, his family wasn't. And undoubtedly, a large part of the reason for that was because of David's decision to have multiple wives. Uh, Again, Haley's Bible Handbook, it says this, David's polygamy was against the law of God. But it was the custom of ancient kings and of the signs of prestige and royalty, which the people seemed to kind of expect of their rulers, a custom toward which in Old Testament times God seemed lenient. However, David reaped a harvest of family troubles. And you see that when you study David's life. And that's the bottom line. David was a man after God's own heart, but he failed in his family life. And you know, he's got you know, one son raping his sister. You've got a, another son then killing his son. Eventually you have Absalom who you know, David doesn't you know, even have a relationship with because of that. And then he rebels. And, and just, you know, the bottom line is a lot of problems in the family. You know, and for me, when I read this right here, I just, I just wonder, how could he do this? And the answer is that all, all the other kings were doing it, right? I mean, it was culturally acceptable. There were, in a, there were even a few patriarchs that you might say kind of did this, right? And so, you know, it seems to be acceptable. It almost seems to be expected among even God's people at this time. You know, this is what kings do, Right? While in in the world they do, in the kingdom of men they do, but not in the kingdom of God. God never called for, God never endorsed polygamy. And we need to make sure, you know, as we go through life, you know, in in I think chapter 13 it was anti-biblical. And I think in chapter 14 the same thing, maybe in a more subtle way but definitely non-biblical. And again, it kind of goes back to the same answer, right? You have to really search the Scriptures and ask God to guide you. Remember, just because everyone else is doing it doesn't make it right. Even in ministry, sometimes you know you got these guys and they're neglecting their family and you figure, well, they're doing it. It's okay, right? Just because they're doing it and their ministry seems to be successful... No, if if you're neglecting your family, and it doesn't matter who's doing it, you know, we know that's wrong. Because the Bible says in 1 Timothy chapter 3, that things start at the home. And so what does it mean to neglect your family? For everyone it's different. Some might say, well, you know, you can only work five days. Or, you know, it's, it's not that neat. It's not that easy to discern But what we need to do is get with the Lord and let our priorities be right. You know, because everyone else is neglecting their family. They seem to have a successful ministry. But one thing I've learned is this, that just because someone is successful in ministry doesn't mean they're right with God. You guys know that, right? And eventually their sin finds them out. God can use a donkey. You want to know why? Because it's His Word. It's His Word. It's His love. I mean, He'll deal with people and He's patient with people. But for us, you know, just because everyone else has a whole bunch of wives or everyone else is doing it, it it doesn't make it right. We have to make that decision, you know, to do things God's way. I like what Augustine said, or as my son calls him, Augustine. I think my son thinks he's more sophisticated. No doubt he's Augustine. Okay. Augustine said this, he said, Right is right, even if no one else is doing it, and wrong is wrong, even if everyone is doing it. Remember that, you guys. And how do we know that? We know what's right and wrong by this Bible right here. Okay? 
So we learn about this, how we can do the, you know, the right thing the wrong way. So we need to search the scriptures. And we learn about this, how we can, you know, do it and justify it just because everyone else is doing it. But no, we need to search the scriptures. And the last thing is this. Don't assume, but do commune. Look at verse 8 of chapter 14. Now when the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over all Israel, and all the Philistines went up to search for David, and David heard of it and went out against them. Then the Philistines went and made a raid on the valley of Rephaim. And so the Philistines were starting a fight, uh, more of a war, right, with David. Now, I'm not sure, but with all that David had been through with them, you guys remember David has some history with the Philistines, right? You guys remember that? And I know this is kind of a, a really a long shot, you know, but there's a possibility that maybe he was thinking, you never know, we might be able to get along. I'm not saying they were going to be best buddies. I don't know, but maybe he was thinking that they might have some type of peace treaty. I'm not sure. But um, uh, definitely wasn't something that the Philistines wanted. But the interesting thing is, why did they start the fight now? Why didn't they start it when David was first become king of Judah? And, and more than likely, the answer is that David was fighting with Israel during that time. So the Philistines are thinking, well, that'll weaken him. You know, he's busy fighting his northern kingdom. But when the kingdom was united, okay, now the Philistines, they're just right here. They're on the west side of Israel. You know, they're, they're thinking, now they're going to be this big old country. Now they're a threat to us when they're united. And so now the Philistines come and they start a fight. Now it's interesting, when you look at a map and you see where the fight begins in the Valley of Rephaim, it's right in between Judah and Israel. And so the enemy was coming in, he said, I don't want any of that unity stuff. I, I, and so what did he do? He, he sends the Philistines after David. Right here it talks about how, um, look at verse 8. Now when the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over all Israel, notice it says all the Philistines went up to search for David. Uh, one translation says they went up in full force to search for him. They're, they're after this guy, right? And so they chose a place that would be right between the former boundaries, between Israel and Judah. They thought they could keep the division alive, to keep them from really uniting. Now, when you think of the Philistines, don't think of them being like these wimpy guys, right? Even though they had a small area of land, they were a formidable force. Not only that, they were the ones who had defeated Saul and uh, all Israel. Uh, and the Philistines... You know, there were giants, right? And so what did David do? We read in verse 10, And David inquired of God, saying, Saul, shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you deliver them into my hand? And the Lord said to him, Go up, for I will deliver them into your hand. You know, David inquired of the Lord. You know, he asked God. He really prayed about it. You know, and I know these things are simple, man. I know you guys, you know, you already know this, you know. But I wonder sometimes if we're doing this sincerely. You know, or is our life just kind of like we go through the motions and or are we hearing the voice of God? Are we really learning His Word and, and reading it and heeding it and learning it to live it? Are we really getting on our knees and on our face and praying you know, over things. Are we really inquiring of the Lord? You know, because what you find is that whenever David inquired of the Lord, he did good. Uh, watch, go, let's look at a whole bunch of scriptures real quick. In First Samuel chapter 23, in verse 1, they, they told David, saying, Look, the Philistines are fighting against Keilah, and they are robbing the threshing floors. Therefore David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go and attack these Philistines? And the Lord said to David, Go and attack the Philistines and save Keilah. 
you know, David just asked the Lord, should I go, right? We see the same thing in, in verse 4. Then David, because they were like questioning him, no way, we shouldn't do that. You know, he's getting opposition. But verse 4, so he asked again. David inquired of the Lord once again. And the Lord answered him and said, arise and go down to Keilah. I will deliver the Philistines into your hands. If you go over to chapter 30 of the same book, in verse uh, 7, then David said to Abiathar, the priest, Ahimelech's son, Please bring the ephod here to me. And Abiathar brought the ephod to David. And so David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I pursue this troop? Shall I overtake them? And he answered him, Pursue, for you shall surely overtake them. This is so beautiful. And without fail, recover all. The enemy is coming to your life. And he's taken, what has he taken away from you? God says, Get on your face. Get on your knees, start praying, start inquiring of the Lord. And he'll tell you exactly what to do and you'll recover all. It's beautiful when you see David inquiring of the Lord. If you go over to the next book in Second Samuel chapter 2, notice in verse 1, it happened after this that David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go up to any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, Go up. And David even asked, Where shall I go up? And the Lord answered him to Hebron. Do you have that type of relationship with God? Where you can ask Him things and He gives you answers? I promise you, you do. You do. While you're like, I haven't heard. Then you haven't been listening. That's all. See, this is real stuff. We have to inquire of the Lord. We see it again if you go over to chapter 21. The same book. Notice in verse 1. It says, Now there was a famine in the days of David for three years. Year after year. And so something's going on in your life. And you're like, man, I don't get it. it just, it's like a famine. It's like uh, something's missing. But you just carry on. Look what David did. David inquired of the Lord. Lord, why is this happening? Why is there a famine? Why is something missing? Why is this not right? Why do we keep hitting our heads against the wall? Why is there this, 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 this failure Aren't we overcomers as Christians? When you haven't asked the Lord, Lord, what, what's going on? David inquired the Lord, and the Lord said, It's because of Saul and his bloodthirsty house, because he killed the Gibeonites. There was, there, was, there was sin that had to be dealt with. God will show you. And I thank God for that, because a lot of times we have blind spots in our life. We can't see it. And, and the Lord, we need to really pray, God, show me. In this case, it was Saul, so he dealt with the situation, and then the famine was gone. You know, all I know is this, man, that, that when we inquire of the Lord, um, then God will do a great work. You know, what we find right here is David inquired of the Lord. And, and back in, in, in First Chronicles, and we'll close up, The Lord said, Go, I will deliver them into your hands. And so they went up to Baal Perazim, and David defeated them there. And then David said, God has broken through my enemies by my hand like a, a breakthrough of water. And therefore they called the name of that place Baal Perazim. And when they left their gods there, like this, David gave a commandment, and they were burned with fire. And you know, David's naming the cities after things that are happening. Why? So he doesn't forget, right? Oh, there's a breakthrough right here, whatever. Um, And so, you know, David here, they get the victory. And uh, I love the way that they burned the gods that they came across. And so, in verse 13, then the Philistines once again made a raid on the valley. And so what do you do? Well, you just go, because that's what you did last time, right? You don't have to pray about it. But, but David prayed about it. Therefore David inquired again of God, and God said to him, You shall not go up after them. Circle around them, and come upon them in front of the mulberry trees. And it shall be when you hear a sound of marching in the tops of the mulberry trees. What do you think that is? That's by angels, huh? It says, then you shall go out for, to battle, for God has gone out before you to strike the camp of the Philistines. And so David did as God commanded him. And they drove back the army of the Philistines from Gibeon as far as Gezer. And then the fame of David went out into all the lands, and the Lord brought the fear of him upon 
all the nations. And I think we have a map that kind of give you a, a little uh, visual of how far they drove the people back. In, in all reality, they just kind of drove them back to, to Philistia. They were, had invaded the nation of Israel. They had taken land from Israel. And what we see is that through David's prayer, he, he, drove, them, he drove them back. Right? And, and David here, I, I love the, what he does. He doesn't assume. He communes. And he prays. And, and we have to pray about everything. When David prayed and David inquired of the Lord, he was in good shape. When he didn't inquire of the Lord, then, you know, things went, went south. You know, he didn't inquire of the Lord regarding the, bringing the ark back. Um, how are you going to do this? And, and he did, you know what, there's another interesting passage in Second Samuel chapter 11, um, where it says, And David inquired of Bathsheba. He didn't inquire of the Lord, he inquired about that chick over there. You know, she's, you know, whatever. And he fell into sin. See, you got to inquire of the Lord. You got to bring everything to the Lord. I'm sure you've heard that song. It's a classic song by Joseph Scriven. What a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit Oh, what needless pain we bear because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. And so, you know, we just have to acknowledge the Lord. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, lean not to your own understanding. Stop it. In all your ways, acknowledge Him. In all your ways. And then He will direct your path. Right? Be anxious for nothing, the Bible says, but in everything. By prayer and supplication. Let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God which passes all understanding. Will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Sometimes the anxiety and the, the depression and the torment. And the worries and the fears are all just because you haven't really prayed. So set your alarm clock. And wake up in the morning before you go out into the day. Spend some time on your knees. How about on your face? Or before you go to sleep. Maybe you're more nocturnal. You know, I'm a morning person. But, you know, I know that you can do both. But, man, give God the best. Always give Him off the top. You get your money in, you give Him right away. You give Him off the top. Talent, treasure, time, everything. And you spend that time in prayer. And you watch what God does. And, and, you know, don't fall into the routines. You know, when, when Joshua, you know, defeated uh, Jericho, remember? Uh, he, God gave him a great victory. And so the next city, they're like, oh, it's no big deal. It's just AI, right? I just send a few guys over there. And what did God do? God, God allowed them to get whooped, you remember? And so Joshua's on his face. Lord, what did we do wrong? Didn't seek him. You got to seek him for everything, right? And, and so, for us, in, in looking at these things, what we find is that God teaches us. You know, you guys, I, I like I like patterns. You know, when you get older, you like routines, right? Some of you older people, you're like that. You know, but be careful. You know, you got, I like what Chuck would say. Okay, wake up in the morning, Lord. What are we going to do today? You just never know. You're always open. Warren Wiersbe again, he said, Twice David sought the mind of the Lord as he confronted his old enemies. Unlike Joshua at Ai, he didn't assume that what worked once would work again. Depending on past victories is a good way to guarantee future defeats. And so pray about everything. Even for us, like we're like, ah, people don't like the way the chairs are set up. Why is that? Because people are creatures of habit, huh? But you guys know the last seven words of a dying church? We never did it that way before. Right? We got to be open to wherever the Lord would lead us. And, you know, it's so cool to see this relationship. I guess in the end of the day, it all boils down to a relationship with God. Christianity is more difficult than the legalistic ways. Christianity is more difficult than religion because religion, they, they do it all for you. Christianity, when you really do real Christianity, you got to hear God's voice. 
you have to you have to hear his voice and that takes i know we're busy but that takes time alone with him inquiring of the lord seeking out his word and making sure that you do things his way it is possible to do the right thing the wrong way remember that and so before you do anything Ask yourself, is it biblical? Secondly, just because everyone else is doing it doesn't make it right. Um, again, ask yourself, is it is it biblical? And then thirdly, don't assume. Don't assume anything, man. I encourage you, rather than assuming, you be communing with God. And before you take steps or make decisions, you need to ask yourself this. Have you really prayed about it? Have you really prayed about it? Okay, let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for allowing us another day, Lord, of life. I thank you for your beautiful people that are here today, Lord. And I thank you for your word that we have as a compass, your word that we have to guide us. Because I was thinking about this today, Lord. I really pray you would bless marriages. I really pray you would bless families. I really pray you would bless single people to be busy serving you and staying pure. I really pray you would bless single people, maybe even in bringing them a spouse in your perfect timing when they're both ready. Lord, I just, I just long for you to bless your people. And I know that you, you want to. You're such a good God. Jesus, you're so good in that you died for us and you're put in a grave, you rose again, Lord. And I just thank you for that, Lord. Lord, I thank you for the gospel that if we just believe with our heart, if we repent of our sins and receive Christ, that we are saved, forgiven and free. So thank you for making us your people, Lord. And I just thank you for allowing us to know that, um, you know, we can have a not only a saved soul, but uh, a sanctified life set apart for you, that you would work in us and that you would work through us. And so bless your people, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.